If you'll uh, take your Bible and open to Luke chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 7 through 14 and talk a little about how to be religious. And I know this is maybe a little different because we were in Luke 10 last week and uh, we're used to working our way through one book of the Bible and uh, that's coming. Uh, the past couple weeks I've been jumping around a little bit and uh, if you'll just be patient with me because I know that's best obviously and we'll get to that but there are just uh, some things on my heart about our life together as a church as we look forward and as we think about the future because because uh, this is a big thing, being a church. It's a responsibility. And so this morning, I want us to look together at Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14, and talk about how we can be religious. And uh, I just mean we're a church, obviously, and so we do a lot of religious things. It's kind of one of the main things that we do. We get together and pray and read the Bible and participate in public worship. We've done a lot of that, and we're going to be doing a lot more of that in the future if we're going to follow Jesus since the book that he wrote, the Bible commands us to do things like gather together with other believers and devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture and celebrating the Lord's Supper, which is this huge privilege. It's one of the main ways that we enjoy our relationship with God, actually, by doing these kinds of religious things. And yet, while it's a privilege, Privilege to participate in religious activity as a church, it also can be dangerous. It can be a little scary, actually, because there's a lot of religious activity that is absolutely 100% empty. That doesn't produce any spiritual benefit. I think of James, where he talks about those who are devoting themselves to hearing the word and yet going away self-deceived. There's a lot of praying and reading the Bible and going to church that's not pleasing to God. It's just empty. And even worse, there's a lot of religious activity that is something that makes God angry. Think of the book of Isaiah as an example. Isaiah chapter 1. Scary, scary chapter. God tells Israel to stop praying. When God tells you to stop praying, that is a big thing. And he actually says that their worship is an abomination to him. An abomination is a heavy word. Like, I hate it. And we see that in the New Testament as well. We're in the Gospel of Luke, and I think of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious, and I know as Christians, we don't usually like the Pharisees. It's not a compliment to call someone a Pharisee, and we think of them as the bad guys automatically. But if we look back on the Pharisees, they actually had a lot going on that we would respect. Like their love for the Bible is one. They didn't just read the Bible, the Pharisees. They studied what it said. And they didn't just study what it said. They took a stand for what they thought was true. They were people with a lot of zeal. Some of them fasted twice a week. And they gave tithes of all that they had. Externally, on the outside, they were very serious about being holy. 
And yet throughout the Gospel of Luke, and especially chapters 11 through 14, we see they are being straight up condemned in spite of all their religious activity. And you might even go further and say at least partially because of it. They were on their way to being damned. Their religious activity was not just empty, it was blinding. It didn't produce any of the things that religious activity should, like real love for God or genuine repentance over sin. Which causes us to ask, I think, the fact that so much religious activity is empty and that some of it is even damning causes us to ask, how can we be religious? Because obviously we have to be religious, but how can we be religious and do the religious things that we need to do, like read our Bible and pray and be serious about holiness and serve and give and go to church without becoming Pharisees. For me, for us, I think that's another important question because enjoying God through our religious activities is one of the sweetest opportunities we have in life right now. And we're here. It's cold. We're, we're shivering. But we're here because we know that. This is big for us. And yet, it's easy to get off track. I want us to be a church who is filled with people who are serious and active and devoted, but I don't ever want us to become this group of people who are just good at religious activity when our religious activity isn't really pleasing to God. And so I think we need to think about how. How do we avoid going the same direction as the Pharisees? Because the fact is that it's often easier to condemn, to say what's wrong or what not to do, to say don't be a Pharisee. And that's good. That's even biblical. I mean, if you read Luke, Jesus spends a lot of time showing his followers the problem with the Pharisees' way of doing religion. And that's part of why Luke even records the story he does in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 14. And yet, of course, he knows we need to know if the Pharisees' way of doing religion caused such problems the way it did, if it caused them to miss what God was doing through Jesus, what exactly is Jesus' replacement? In other words, how can we be religious without becoming Pharisees? And that's essentially the purpose of verses 7 through 14, where Jesus gives us two very practical, down-to-earth steps we must take if we're going to do religion, church, right. First, number one, you ready? We must pursue humility. And this is something that we have to be relentless about. Humility needs to be our best friend. If we're going to do church right, we have to wake up each morning and proactively, deliberately humble ourselves, which I know sounds kind of obvious, except for the fact that a whole lot of times it isn't. There are a whole lot of times instead where we're motivated by a desire to exalt ourselves, which is why so often we're so good at finding fault with others. And it's why so often we're hard on others. And it's why so often we're more concerned with what people think about us than we are about what's actually going on in our hearts. And it's why so often we're looking for attention and we can't just do things. We want other people to see us doing things. And it's why, on the other hand, sometimes 
sometimes we're so afraid to do things because we don't want to mess up and lose the respect of others. We want people to think we're good because we think that we are basically good and pretty important as well. And we want people to know it and show it. Kind of like the Pharisees, actually. In chapter 14, verse 1, Luke tells us that the Pharisees had invited Jesus over to dinner one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of, the, of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. But what they didn't know was that at the same time, Jesus was watching them. Luke writes in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Apparently in those days when you went to someone's house for a meal, especially a meal like this, when a visiting teacher had been invited over, it was about more than just a meal at a friend's house. It was about showing everyone how important you were. And how important you were was demonstrated by where you sat. Basically, the closer that you were sitting to the person who invited you, the more important people would have thought you were. Sitting next to, or at least close to, the host was what you might have called a place of honor. And that's what the people who were coming to this meal were obvious, obviously about. Not listening to Jesus, not getting to know Jesus, but honoring themselves. In fact, they were so focused on that, instead of waiting for the host to seat them, Jesus noticed that they were trying to grab the most important places for themselves. Which, looking at the Gospels as a whole, is clearly not just a one-time thing that Jesus is suddenly noticing. This was something that was a pattern for the Pharisees to exalt themselves. They thought of themselves as important, and they used religious activity to get people to notice. Like you might remember, Matthew 6, verse 1, which is an illustration where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to, what? Be seen by them. And part of the reason he says that is because that's exactly what he saw the Pharisees doing. When they gave to the needy, what did they do? They would sound a trumpet that they might be praised by others. And when they prayed, where did they like to pray? They prayed standing in public places that they might be seen by, by others. And when they fasted, they would look as sad as possible. In Jesus' words, they would disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, Jesus goes on and sums up the Pharisees' whole approach to religious activity. Listen to this. They do all their deeds to be seen by others because, of course, they think their deeds deserve to be seen by others. And he gives some illustrations how. He says, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And that was a little leather box attached to a little leather band that contained scriptures, which is not a, a problem in and of itself to have a scripture somewhere as a reminder. The problem was that they were using these little leather boxes not to remind themselves of scripture, but as a way of getting people's attention because their religion was for show. 
Because once again, Matthew 23, 6, they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others because they believed they deserved honor. They were driven by a desire to get honor from people, which is part of what makes wanting glory from people a big deal. I mean, stop and think about it. Why does it matter if you go around wanting people to show you such respect? Because respect in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? So why does it matter if you go around wanting people to show you respect? It matters because it reveals what you believe about yourself. Listen, if I don't think I'm that important, then it doesn't bother me if you don't treat me as someone important. I'm able to say, ah, oh, it would be nice if they showed me respect. Respect is nice, but I don't deserve it. And so it's not such a surprise or a big deal when I don't get it. It's because I think that I'm important that I work so hard to get you to notice and I get so bothered when you don't. And the thing is that that messes us up spiritually. In fact, Jesus says it was one of the things that ended up keeping the Pharisees from believing in him. Listen to John chapter 5, verse 44. In fact, you might turn there for a second. John 5, verse 44. Jesus says, how can you believe? And he's getting here at what was stopping the Pharisees from believing. There's a great sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage. You should listen to it. But Jesus asked, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that only comes from God? And you see there, it's interesting, the problem wasn't that they were seeking glory. You see that, right? The problem is that they were seeking glory in the wrong place. That's so important because we were made for glory. And ultimately, the only way we will achieve glory is if we receive glory from God as a gift on the basis of what Jesus has done. But a lot of people don't like that method of getting glory. They want instead to get it from people on the basis of their own efforts. And that's actually the kind of glory that matters to them most, which, I don't know, I think maybe sounds a little crazy to us at first as we're sitting here at church, being more concerned about the glory that you get from people than the glory that comes from God. We're like, come on. And I think we can look at the Pharisees and be like, what's your problem, really? You're doing all this stuff that you're doing, and you're not even thinking about the glory of God because you're worried all the time about what other people think about you. And we kind of feel like we're standing with Jesus, you know? And we're saying, man, these Pharisees, do you see these Pharisees, Jesus? Can you believe them? We, we, we think we're the good guys. I mean, look at you Pharisees coming here to dinner with Jesus and trying to grab all these good seats. Except I wonder if we're a little more honest, how many of us are going through life driven basically by the same thing that was driving them? 
And obviously it might not be the good seat that we're worried about, but other people noticing us, seeing us, valuing us, that's what drives us. We think we're important, and so we really want others to notice. Maybe by what we wear, or the way we look, or what we own, or how other people treat us, or maybe even by how we serve. We can use service as a means to get people to notice us. But however we do it, it's like we're going through life with this desire to have people look at us and think, yeah, they really are something. They are significant. And it's so deep down in us that it even impacts the small, little, nobody hardly notices daily choices that we're making where we are sneakily trying somehow to grab the honor and respect that we want for ourselves, which I'm telling you is dangerous. Thinking that we deserve glory, overvaluing glory from people, thinking it's our job to glorify ourselves, all that goes together and it makes up something we call spiritual pride. The spiritually proud person isn't thinking so much about what he does in terms of his relationship with God. He's basing everything on what people think of him and basically he's trying to find ways to get people to think about him the way he thinks about himself. He thinks he's great and he's using religious activity to get other people to affirm that and I'm saying you and I need to look at ourselves and ask if that's what drives us, if that's a pattern. Are you often doing things, not doing things because you want people to notice you, honor you, to agree with you about you? And you need to evaluate yourself because that's the source, honestly, of a lot of religious error. There's all kinds of nonsense going on in the name of religion. And what's at the root of so much of that crazy stuff that people are willing to believe? It's so often this desire to glorify ourselves. It's this conviction that we're so important and that other people need to know it. And... Not only is that the source of a lot of religious error, it's also the source of so much practical error as well. It's like a door into our hearts that the devil is constantly seeking to open because he knows we usually leave it unlocked. It's like a handle on our souls that he grabs hold of and uses to drag us down into all sorts of spiritual trouble. It's like anesthesia, honestly, spiritual pride. It puts us to sleep and so often we don't even notice. It's so dangerous, spiritual pride is like poison because it is anti-gospel. That's what makes it a big deal ultimately. Because, you know, we might look at people here in Luke 14 trying to find the most important seat for themselves and think, okay, that's not good. I, I, I get that's not really polite. But what's the problem, really? The problem is that Jesus knows those seemingly small ways of living are tied to a deep down way of thinking that is the opposite of how the gospel works. And so in verse 8, he tells a story to help us understand. Luke writes, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. 
and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Which at first seems what? It almost seems too easy for one of Jesus' stories, honestly. I mean, I don't know how you're hearing that, but for me, the first time, I was really wondering, what's going on? Like, is there something more? Because it sort of sounds like Jesus is suddenly giving advice on manners or something. Or even worse, like, you know, when you go to a wedding, this is the best way to get a good seat. Which doesn't really sound like Jesus, but I think the, the key is that Luke says, this is what? This is a parable. Now he told a parable. It's like hint, hint, because in a parable, Jesus is using something from everyday life that people are familiar with to teach them a truth about the gospel that he can see they weren't familiar with. Like here, he's asking them to imagine going to a wedding. I think even now when you're invited to a wedding, it's tempting to think you matter more to the couple than you really do. And so Jesus asked them to imagine going to a wedding and thinking you're so important that you don't even need to wait for the host to come and show you the table, but instead you decide to go and seat yourself, like right up front, which is kind of ridiculous because everybody knows at a wedding it's the host who gets to decide where you sit. And then what if you're not actually as important as you think? I I mean, imagine here, you assume you deserve a certain place when someone more important to the couple comes in and the person who's putting on the wedding has to come up to you in front of everyone else and move you not just to another table, but to the table for the people who were the least important. Which for the Pharisees, who were so obviously worked up about making sure they were honored, would have been like the worst thing in the world, being shamed like that in front of everyone. Which is why Jesus says, you know what's wise, if you really want to be honored at a wedding, is not assuming anything. Instead, the opposite. Go and sit at the lowest place, because that way the host can come up and say to you, friend, move up higher. And Jesus says, then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. And the point, of course, is not, bold print, not so much what to do when you're invited to a wedding, because this is a parable, meaning it's intended to teach us something about the gospel. This story is supposed to help you understand something about the gospel. And to understand what, you have to step back and look at what Jesus is talking about in the stories around this one, about the feast or the banquet that God's going to put on in his kingdom. That's the context. If you go back to Luke 13, 29, and if we were working our way through Luke verse by verse, you'd see this verse, Luke 13, 29, is almost like an introduction to the stories that follow. And here Jesus says, people looking to the end of all things, the kingdom of God, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, we know this, God's got this big plan to put on a celebration at the end of the universe.
Proverbs, which the Bible describes as being like a banquet, or you might even say a party. And as you think about that party that God's putting on, if you can see how foolish it would be to go to a wedding and assume you deserve a place of honor and seat yourself at the most important table, and if you can see how terrible it would be to have the host come up to you and say you're not supposed to sit at that table and humiliate you in front of all the other guests, then you see how much more foolish it would be to go through life assuming you deserve a place at the table in the kingdom of God. You don't get to seat yourself, you know, at a human wedding. The host is the one who decides where you sit. You don't just get to sit wherever you want based on what you think of yourself and when it comes to eternal life and the kingdom of God. God is the one who gets to decide who gets to enter. You don't just come in because you think you deserve to come in. He's made the requirements very clear and one of the absolute requirements Requirements is that you humble yourself before him. Look at Luke 14, verse 11. For everyone, this is the punchline of the story, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that is not optional, which is why God says it over and over and over. It's like right on the kingdom of God banquet invitation. James, James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you. Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. David, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And all that is a promise. This is how it is always going to work when it comes to the kingdom of God. Always. Because I don't know, maybe at a human wedding, you might possibly get away with sitting at a more important table. But you will absolutely never get away with exalting yourself before God. If you think you deserve heaven, you will be humili humiliated because he promises everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. There will not be one single person in heaven who thinks he deserves it. Every single person who spent his life thinking of himself as pretty good and worthy of receiving honor from God is going to be locked out. And yet, on the other hand, you know, the good news is that God also promises that every single person who humbles himself will be exalted. Which is part of why we say, go sit at the lowest table. Because I promise God is going to see you sitting there. There's no one who's ever truly humbled himself before God, who's come empty-handed to God, who comes to God's party saying, you know what, I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. I just need you, God. I need you to show me mercy because of Jesus that God is not going to exalt. And so if you're here and if you're struggling in terms of your relationship with God and over the past few weeks you've been feeling somewhat stuck spiritually and you're starting to think, you know what, I need to, to do something but you're not sure where to start because you don't want your religious activity to, to be empty and what's more, you see how people get it wrong. I'm telling you, listen to Jesus because can you hear him speak? 
Because through his word, he's speaking to you now. Pursue humility. You can mark it down. The absolute only people whose God's going to honor at the final judgment are the people who have humbled themselves, who know they're unworthy sinners, and who have put their total trust in the mercy of Jesus Christ on the basis of his death on the cross. That's a promise. If you stop talking and acting like you deserve something from God, but you recognize that you don't deserve anything good at all apart from Jesus Christ, and you come to him like a beggar, trusting in his mercy through Christ alone, God will raise you up to eternal life. You know, we had a lot of beggars actually uh, come to our gate in uh, South Africa. We had to have gates because of, you know, crime and all that. But we had a lot of beggars come to our gate. And uh, often when people have beggars come to their gate, they'll say, I'll, I'll give you something if you'll work for it. And so sometimes even beggars will come and say, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want a handout. I, I want to work for this. Do you realize that's the opposite of how God works? If you come to God saying, ah, I don't want a handout. I, I want to work for this. God says, go back, try again. The only kind of beggar I'll accept is the beggar who comes to my door realizing he's got nothing. And his only hope is my mercy. And because that's how the gospel works, if we're already Christians, we look back and we see that if that's how we entered the kingdom... By humbling ourselves, if we don't want to become mercy uh, Pharisees, that's how we need to live. Now that we're in, you know? We need to be relentless in our pursuit of humility. This is something that you've got to want. As a church, as religious people, we should think of pride as our worst enemy. Every little bit that you give in to pride, every little bit you start worrying about what other people think of you, every little bit you start wanting other people to honor you and thinking that you deserve honor from other people is a step towards your relationship with God becoming more and more like a Pharisee's. I remember a couple years ago, I noticed, started noticing this pattern in my life where when I was out certain places and interacting with people, I didn't like being slighted. Uh, all kinds of funny ways. You know, in uh, South Africa, when you open the door for someone, a lot of times they don't say thank you. Or uh, Marta and I, we were at the gym. We were in this big room, you know. You're, you're supposed to be able to use this room for exercising. And there were two ladies in there. And the one lady saw Marta and me come in, and I could tell she was bothered. You know, she kept looking over at us. And finally she said, oh, you can't be in this room because we're having a class. And there were like two people, and it's this huge room. And I was like, really? Who do, who do you think you are? And I'm saying, that was a moment for me, because why does that bother me? There are other places I could go. It bothered me because that lady was acting like she was more important than me. And so that exposed something in my heart. And if I let that go, if God didn't help me see that and deal with that over time, that pride would grow and it would end up making my relationship with God a little more like a Pharisee. Are you hearing me? I, I just love this illustration Jesus is giving in Luke 14 because it seems so ordinary. You know, looking for the most important places to sit. And yet this ordinary way that people go about their life is a sign spiritually of this deep problem. It's like a symptom that we're not getting the gospel. And we have to watch out for this particular symptom as a church because it feels so normal when the entire world is living to exalt themselves. 
And because that's how we were living before God saved us. And so it's so easy to slip back into living to get people to think of us as something, even as Christians, only now we're using good things like religious activity to do it. And as a result, it's not something always that a lot of people can notice because they can't see our heart. And so on the outside, we're doing all this stuff that we're supposed to be doing, like reading our Bibles, witnessing, praying. But on the inside, we're not humbled before God. And if we let that go, if we don't fight that, if we don't help each other fight that, our religious activity is going to become empty. And you know what? If we, if we don't repent, if we just keep on being religious and using religion to get people to think we're something and we're really never humbled before God, then all that religious activity might end up being worse than empty. Like with the Pharisees, it might be soul-destroying, which I think is something that is so frightening. And because it's so frightening, we should be proactively, deliberately, daily pursuing humility. I'm saying, do not be passive about pursuing humility. And fortunately, you're not in this on your own. There is so much that God's already doing in your life to humble you, if you'll just pay attention. He is seeking to help you become humble. That's part of why he gives you trials. That's part of why you fail. That's part of why you have all these limitations that frustrate you. It's like at an airport. A lot of times at an airport, they have that thing you walk on. I don't even know the name, but it's like a, a little like an escalator, but it's not going upstairs. It's just going one direction. And so if you step on that, it can help you walk somewhere faster. Or if you're tired, you can stand there and it'll keep you moving. And that's the way God's designed life in general, and the Christian life especially. It's like we're standing on that thing, and it's headed toward humility. That's where life has taken us. If you don't, if you don't think that, spend time with a, a, an old man. Life... Life is taking us towards, you know, God, life, the way this direct life is headed is taking us towards being humbled if we're paying attention. But most of the time, we're so frustrated because we're wanting to go in the opposite direction. And so we're spending, we're like a guy walking the wrong way on one of those things. And so we're spending our lives fighting against God's goal for us, which is humility. And as Christians, that just dries us up spiritually to the point where even if we're reading the Bible and praying, it becomes something strange. And you know, you can hit the fast forward button on your spiritual life if you just turn around and decide God's direction for your life is best. Humility is best. And you start going God's direction, the direction that he wants you to head towards humility. How? By choosing in small ways every day to apply what you believe about God and how you're saved to the actual way you live your life. Like how you talk, what you talk about, who you talk to, like who you think about, what you think about, like how you want other people to treat you. You want to be constantly choosing to sit in the lowest table because you trust God's promises. And you know, this is what faith looks like. Faith chooses in the day-to-day -day realities of life to do what most people would think is crazy. It chooses humility because faith is convinced God loves humble people. 
And, and really I'm saying that's one of the first practical steps we have to take and keep taking at CBC if we want to do church right. First, we have to be people who in faith pursue, constantly pursue humility. Second, we need to live for eternity. Live for eternity. If you imagine religious activity, all this stuff we do like a body. Faith in God's promises is like the soul. And obviously you, you can have a body without a soul, but it's dead. And it's not long before it starts to decay. And you can have religious activity without faith in God's promises. But it's not long before it starts to look pretty ugly as well because religious activity without faith in God's promises is like a body that's dead. And one of the most important promises we embraced back when we became Christian, Christians had to do with what comes after this life. Most famous verse probably in the world, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this promise of eternal life is so important that you don't have Christianity without it. There's no Christianity without the resurrection of the dead. And yet, there is a whole lot of religious activity without it. You can be religious and actually very religious without ever once thinking about eternity because sometimes religious activity has certain benefits right now, which Jesus sees as he's looking at the Pharisees, verse 12. Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. Which definitely is one of my favorite classic Jesus moments in the Gospels. This is like one of my favorite moments ever because basically it's like here are these people who invited Jesus over to dinner to judge him, but they had no clue that he would completely turn the tables and end up judging them. In fact, at first, you know, it even sounds a little rude because it's like Jesus is looking at the people the Pharisees invited over to dinner and he's saying, you know what? You invited like totally all the wrong people. But obviously Jesus isn't rude. Instead, this is more like another parable, something Jesus is saying to make a point that reaches way beyond just this moment and who these Pharisees had invited because Jesus is seeing a pattern which is that the Pharisees were making decisions primarily based on how those decisions could benefit them now in this life, in this moment. Which is why when they had dinners, they would invite people they thought could invite them back, who could repay them. When Jesus is saying, really, you should be doing the exact opposite. In other words, you shouldn't invite these people. You invited the wrong people. Why? Why does he say they invited the wrong people? It's so awesome. It's so, it's just so, so classic. He says, you, you should have invited these people because they might repay you. You don't want anyone coming to your wedding who might bring a gift. You only want people coming to your dinner who are coming to take. When's the, this is just kind of funny because when's the time that we usually stop serving people? We're like, this guy's a taker. This guy's a taker. Jesus is like, yeah, that's the only kind of person you should invite over to dinner. 
which is surprising. And of course, the point isn't that it's always wrong to have dinner with your friends or something. Jesus had dinner with his friends. Instead, as Jesus was looking at the Pharisees, he's seen deep into their heart. And what he's seen is that while on the outside, they might have looked like they were serious believers, but on the inside, they were motivated by the same thing that motivated unbelievers. Now, 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 now. Which for unbelievers makes sense because they're unbelievers. They don't believe in a resurrection of the dead. But for someone who says they're a believer is actually the path towards spiritual death. If I look at my life and I'm making most of my decisions based on how I can benefit myself now, I'm on the path towards becoming a Pharisee. And it doesn't matter how involved I might be in religious activity, which I think is a little bit scary again, because how much of our lives are primarily motivated by what is good for us now? How many decisions do we make based primarily on how it's going to benefit us now? How many things do we not even consider doing because we don't see how it might benefit us? How many people do we develop relationships with because we think they can do something for us? How many people do we fail to reach out to because we think they will make our lives more difficult? We all say, oh man, I want to have this vibrant Christian life and I want to have this deep relationship with Christ. When the thing is, a deep relationship with Christ, hear me now, requires faith in Christ. A deep relationship with Christ requires faith in Christ. You can't expect to have a deep relationship with Christ without believing his promises. And that's the part where most of us struggle. Because it's easy to do religious activity if I think it can benefit me now. I can do anything if I think it will benefit me now. I can show up at church. I can sing the songs. I can sit there while someone's talking if I think it can give me what I want. That's not unusual. People do all kinds of crazy things because they have this hope that they're going to get something from it now. If I said, who here wants to come up and stand on their head for an hour and I'll give you $10,000? There are all kinds of people who might do it out there, but living for eternity is something different. Living for what you can't see, what God can give you, what only God can give you after the resurrection of the dead, that requires what? That requires actual faith. I have to actually believe what Jesus says if I'm going to do something that costs me and that has no earthly reward. And, and, and so the problem is that sometimes people will say they want to have this deep relationship with Christ, but they only want to get it by doing religious activity without actually being willing to trust Christ. We want to be able to come to church and, and do our thing and have this close relationship with God and then go out and live the way everyone else is living, which is for ourselves and what we can get right now. And it doesn't work like that. That's how we become Pharisees, engaging in religious activity while living for now. And if we want to do religion right, we're going to have to deliberately make choices that are first and foremost based on faith in what God said about eternal life. 
That needs to be at the top of our day-to-day decision-making process. How will this decision impact me a billion years from now? Quoting Jesus in verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We uh, did that one time. uh, (laughs) Really, we had a group of friends and we said, why don't we all invite for dinner the last person we would normally expect to invite for dinner? Um, We didn't tell them that. That wasn't like on the invitation card. (laughs) That's not the good way to do it. And yet, of course, Jesus isn't just talking about who you invite to dinner. He's talking about making choices that can only be explained one way. And that's the fact that you believe in heaven. Which is how Jesus just wants us to think about everything. When you give to the needy, Matthew 6, what does he say? Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is a a really famous passage, you know it, I hope. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, and how does it end? Because that's actually, this is like such a significant statement. Good to memorize. For, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the key. That's why this matters so much. Because we usually think, what's in my heart will determine where I put my treasures. But is that what Jesus says in that verse? If I'm always thinking about me and what I can get from me right now, it's going to influence how I live and where I put my treasures, obviously. But Jesus here, he says it the opposite way around. It's not where your heart is, there your treasure is. That's not what he says. But instead, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, where you're putting your treasures will impact where your heart is. Where you place your treasure, your heart will follow. Which is why we can't just be religious and then go out and make all of our decisions based on what we think we can get for ourselves right now and expect that we'll move in the right direction spiritually. If we're putting our treasures here on earth, that's where our hearts are going to end up. If we want our hearts to be with Christ, then our treasure needs to be with Christ. And we put our treasures with Christ by doing what Jesus says here, which is regularly making decisions that can only be rewarded by God. Like praying when no one sees, or fasting and not letting anyone know, or showing radical generosity to people who can never pay us back simply because we believe in Jesus and what he says about eternity. Do we believe in Jesus and what he says about eternity? If not, what are we doing here, right? 
it's great to get together with other people and read the scripture and pray and worship and sing. It's a, it's a privilege. But it's also dangerous because it's possible to do all of that without faith in Christ. And without faith in Christ, all this stuff we're doing is empty and ultimately soul-destroying. And yet sometimes it's hard to, to see we're not exercising our faith because we're so busy, so active, which is why I think it's important we stop and evaluate our lives and ask, is my public religious activity motivated by faith? Is the pattern of my life one of self-interest, of getting people to notice me, to think I'm important? And is the pattern of my life one of living for now? Because those are two of the clearest signs of unbelief in the gospel. And for some people, of course, unfortunately, that may be the whole thing. I hope not here at CBC, but we're people. And so it's possible you might be here, and that may be the essence of your religion. And it may be that you're not a Christian. I just want to plead with you to give that kind of religion up and to come to Jesus, repenting and asking him to transform you from the inside out so that your religious activity will flow out of faith in God's promises instead of what you can get for yourself. And for others, it may be that you've just slipped. You've trusted Christ. You know the love of Christ, but you're not trusting him on a daily basis, and you've sort of developed this pattern of making the small decisions of your life in ways that are mostly about you and your reputation and your comfort, and you're wondering, why isn't my relationship with God the way it used to be? I'm here at church. But you don't just need church and religious activity if you're going to enjoy your relationship with God. You need to exercise faith. Not just when you're singing on Sunday or doing something in church, but all the way down to when you go to a dinner and have to choose where to sit. And when you decide to have people over and you're thinking about who to invite. If we're going to do religious activity right, we can't just do religious activity. First, there has to be faith. Faith has to come first. And that faith works how? One, it produces humility. We stop trying to get the focus on ourselves. And here's a little warning, even for us in America, I think. Faith even causes us to stop trying to be radical for the sake of getting others to think we really have faith. Faith, we can even take things like religious activity or being radical, you know? And it's not so much about trust in Christ's promises as it is about getting people to think that we're significant. If we're going to do radical right or religion right, it can't be about us. It's got to be about Christ. And faith will produce humility. And two, it will cause you to make choices that don't make sense to the world because they're not based on what you can get right now, but instead based on God and what his priorities are. And I'm excited because if we exercise our faith like that, as a church in the small, nitty-gritty areas of our everyday lives, that's the pattern we're going to be able to come and enjoy public worship together. And more importantly, our religious activity will glorify God. It will be the kind of religious activity that makes our Savior smile. Let's pray. Father, we need the gospel.
We can even take something as beautiful. How much do we need the gospel? We can even take something as beautiful as, as religious activity or serving the poor or whatever. We can take that and make it about us. And somehow getting others to notice us or even getting you to notice us. Somehow we've forgotten. We can forget the gospel as we're saying we're about the gospel. And so, Lord, thank you for your word which exposes us. But it does more than just expose us. It doesn't just come in and say, ah, oh, you're not humble enough. Ah, oh, you, you don't pursue eternity enough. It, the gospel comes and says there's a savior for sinners like that. There's a savior for self-righteous Pharisees. There's a, there's a savior for those who are going out and living for themselves. There's a savior who, for people who use religion for themselves. We need that savior. We know, Jesus, you are the only one who is kind enough, generous enough to provide and able, powerful enough and good enough and perfect enough to be able to provide the salvation that we need. And so we come to you now like beggars. Help us not to forget that apart from Christ, we're worse than beggars. We're people who deserve hell. But we're not apart from you. We're in you. And so you've blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're people who have been shown such mercy. And may that gospel truth, that gospel reality transform us all the way down. All the way down to the most ordinary, boring, <laughs> uh, nitty-gritty areas of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus, your name. Amen.